Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a joy to come to you again uh, here in the building that the Lord has given us to, to gather and worship Him in. Uh, at this time, would you go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Uh, for those of you who follow from week to week, I know you're, you're ready, expecting the, the very next verse, and that's what we do here. If you're, if you're listening to this for the first time, or maybe you're new to Four Corners, uh, that is what we do here. We build on exposition. We walk through the text of Scripture, various books or chunks of books, and uh, we're, we're going through currently a series on Paul's letter to the Romans, and we have been there for a little while now, and we're now in chapter 1, verse 19. And the text for today uh, will cover three verses, 19 to 21. But briefly, I just want to reiterate something that you heard earlier from one of our other elders, Walt Sellers, and that is uh, that we will be regathering as a church. I'm excited to announce we will be Regathering as a church on June 21st, so just two weeks from today for you listening, uh, two weeks and a day for, for me filming here on Saturday, uh, we will be back together in the building. It will look a little different, we'll be spaced out uh, considerably, uh, but we will nonetheless be here together in the building God has given us, in the gathering place that God has given us to worship Him together. So I hope you're excited about that uh, as we Recall from earlier in Romans this longing to be together uh, that we see very much with the Apostle Paul, the longing, the desire to be present with God's people. And so uh, we eagerly await that time, and, and I pray that we would, we would be prayerful as we approach that day. Uh, we did have an elders meeting this past week, and we discussed a number of details, and uh, a lot of that will be communicated to the congregation soon through the deacons. Uh, I believe the deacons are going to make some uh, videos or a video where they're going to walk through with everyone how this is going to happen and the layout of the building and what the various procedures in place will be and what some of the things we're asking of folks uh, will be. So just look forward to that, but that should be coming soon. And uh, let me just say this, because I know a number of people are probably wondering about this. We are continuing to wrestle with the question of gospel community groups. So when will gospel community groups regather and how that will happen? And so I just want to reassure everyone that we are actively discussing this. We talked about it for a good bit in our elders meeting. Um, but we have decided to deal with this question more specifically uh, next month, in our elders' meeting next month. There are a number of considerations, a number of questions that we, we're also trying to be consistent in how we do our corporate gathering and the guidance that we give to group leaders. So we would ask that, I know that everyone wants to see each other again, and, and, and I would say that if you want to get together with folks outside of the regular gospel community group gathering, that is totally your prerogative to do. Uh, but we just at this time will continue to have the regularly scheduled gospel community group meetings online uh, with the hope that we will be able to come up with a safe and wise way to regather in the near future. So please pray. Pray for us as elders that we will have God's wisdom uh, that uh, the Lord, I recently heard John Piper say in one of his Ask Pastor John episodes, he commented that when he was pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, that he's, he's sure that 
no decision he and the other elders made was, was anything higher than a B-minus decision. Uh, just given the frailty of human beings and, and our inability sometimes to see all that we need to see. So just pray that God would help us. We are fallible men and we are trying to make the best decisions we can for this body of believers. So please pray and pray for unity in the body. As I said last week, we recognize that there are so many different ways of coming at this pandemic. Different viewpoints about uh, the, the level of concern that we should have, the level of caution, and uh, different ways that families are approaching this. And so uh, we are trying to dialogue with people who have very different viewpoints, and uh, we just ask for your prayers. And we pray that we all would cultivate during this time a spirit of unity and peace in the Lord. So let's ask the Lord to graciously work in our hearts so that we are patient and kind and all that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, that we are that during this time to one another. That will honor the Lord and that will show our children and the world around us that we really do have the Spirit, that we're different from the rest of the world. As I noted last week, we have now entered into the first major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. And this section concerns justification by faith. Romans can really be divided into four major sections, uh, chapters 1 to 4 and 5 to 8, 9 to 11, and then chapters 12 moving on towards the end with those final remarks by Paul, those personal remarks in chapter 15, and then uh, the greetings that we find in chapter 16. But we're now in that very first chunk after the introductory material where Paul greets his readers and he tells of his ministry, tells of his mission. Now we're in the first chunk of Romans, chapter 1, 18 to 4, 25. And as I said last week, at the beginning of this larger section, we find an extended discussion on human sinfulness and condemnation. So we're going to be here for a while. As I said last week, this is, this is not the most comfortable place to be. But for the Christian, it, it can be a very insightful and even liberating place to be as we consider all that Jesus has saved us from. And so we're here now looking at human sinfulness and condemnation. And this will run from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. It begins... In verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's where it begins, verse 18, and we looked at this last week. The anger from above, the, the wrath, the righteous indignation, the just wrath of God from above, and the evil from below. We find that in the very first verse. And then the heart of this passage, we could say, is chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. And then the conclusion of this section within a section comes in chapter 3, verse 20. For by, the works, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
So that's where we're headed. We're headed towards the core at 310. We're headed towards the conclusion at chapter 3, verse 20. So what is Paul's big idea? Why this section within a section? This section on sin and condemnation within a section on justification by faith. Well, here's what Paul is getting at. We are all condemned. We are all condemned sinners in need of God's gift of righteousness. The righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, that is through Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to our account, and the righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. So if we go back to the beginning, to the thesis statement of the letter in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, what Paul is doing is he's putting everyone in a particular place, condemnation, judged, in order that he might show the beauty and the great need of the gospel that he preaches. It is God's righteousness rather than human righteousness that we need. There is no such thing as human righteousness. I just want to stop here and ask a very basic question that I think each of us needs to continually be confronted with. And it's this, have you received this gift? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you looked away from your own righteousness to the righteousness that God gives through Christ as your basis for coming to God, as your basis for living your life? There are only two kinds of people. There are people who are trying to make themselves righteous in unrighteousness. And there are those whom God has made righteous through Christ. Only two kinds of people. So I ask you this morning, which are you? Throughout this section, we see that God's wrath falls on Gentiles and Jews alike. The wording of verse 18 is comprehensive, and we saw that last week. It is all human beings. No one is accepted from this. No one is exempted from this status of being underneath God's wrath. But it does appear, as Paul is unfolding his argument, it does appear that verses 18 to 32 are particularly directed to the Gentiles. This is God's judgment on the Gentile nations, on the pagan nations of the world. The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and so forth. And then, in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. And so we're going to see that as Paul is putting the Gentiles under God's verdict 
of, of being condemned, you can kind of imagine in the background, there are some other folks, some Jews who are, who are clapping their hands going, yes, amen, Paul, all Gentiles condemned for their wicked idolatry and their wicked deeds against God's holy law. And then Paul will turn in chapter 2 and he will look at those self-righteous Jews pointing their finger at the Gentiles and he will say to them, you too are under God's wrath. The wrath of God revealed against Jew and Gentile and therefore the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile alike. So as we reach into this verdict on the Gentiles in verses 19 to 21, the title for the sermon today is The Truth Rejected. The truth rejected. Paul has just told us that God's wrath stands over all people because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is what human beings do. And so now, in verses 19 to 21, Paul wants to explain that. What, what is he talking about? The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, Paul, so what do you mean by that? What, is, what does it mean to suppress the truth? Can you explain that to us further? Okay, Paul says, that is what I will do. How is it that human beings suppress the truth. And that's what we will look at today and then continuing forward into next week. So if you would, wherever you are, please stand. Recognize you may not be able to do this, uh, but if you can, we stand out of reverence for God's word. And now we will read. Uh, I will begin in verse 18. So we'll read verses 18 to 21, just so you can get the flow of thought. But today we will be looking at studying verses 19 to 21. So let's read God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can go ahead and be seated wherever you are. We're going to stop there for today and let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask that the reality of our sinfulness, the intensity of God's judgment, and the sweetness of the gospel of Christ would be made more evident in our hearts, that we would realize it more deeply, that it would, it would spur us on towards gospel living, the kind of living that we find 
Uh, In Titus 2, we talked about that a while ago when we went through Titus, how the gospel that has been revealed, that has appeared, it, it spurs us on towards godliness of life. Godliness and gratitude and evangelistic zeal. Let's pray that all of these things would just grow up in our hearts by our entire time in Romans. But specifically, let's pray that this would happen today. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for these precious verses, these phrases, these words which you have given us to chew upon today. God, we ask that what is presented here in terms of exposition would be clear to your people that we would understand what is here. And through that understanding, God, that as I said before, we would come to a better understanding of our sin, our need for a Savior, our appreciation of the Savior, the life the Savior has has purchased us for, and the message that we have now to proclaim to our offspring and to all that we meet. God, would you be merciful to us as we sit before your word, as we sit under your word. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it. We ask that he would do the applying work that only he can do as he touches the nerves of individuals, as he reaches into the real life circumstances and situations of people as he reaches into the secrets of men's hearts. We pray, God, that this time in your word would indeed be fruitful. God, we know that this is grace. We don't deserve to have a Bible. We don't deserve to have you dwelling within us. We don't deserve to be changed, matured, disciplined, grown, conformed to the image of Christ. But God, in your word, you promise, just as you promised to Abraham all those years ago, you promise that you have purchased us and that you will finish this work which you began in us. So God, we pray that this morning's sermon would contribute to the working out of our salvation, to the the work that you began in us and that you are continuing forward in each of us, God, that this sermon would be a tool in your hand for those ends. We ask that hearts would now be opened. We ask that the the minds of children would be stilled and that all would be in awe of you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things to consider this morning. As we look at the truth rejected, two things to consider. These are our two points for those who are writing them down. Easy, simple, here they are. Number one, God shows. Number two, we suppress. God shows, we suppress. So let's look first at God shows. Look with me again at verses 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Natural revelation. General revelation. This is the doctrine that God reveals himself in nature, in creation, not in a specific saving covenantal way. We must affirm that. We must see that from Scripture, that this revelation is not in a saving covenantal way. Not in the way that he does in special revelation. In the revelation that he has given in the theophanies of the Old Testament. As he spoke his word to the patriarchs. As he spoke through the prophets. Thus says the Lord. In the appearance of of Jesus Christ. God's self-revelation on earth. the, The very image of God. The very son of God. As John says in 1 John. We have handled him. We've seen him. We've we've heard him, we have perceived him, the word of life. He is the word of God made flesh. And now we have inscripturated God's word where where Jesus, as he's tempted, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting the written in scripture which he says elsewhere cannot be broken so we're not talking here about special revelation which must be distinguished from general revelation in nature and in creation this general revelation to humanity This doctrine of natural or general revelation we find so well articulated by the psalmist. In Psalm 19, as you heard Walt read earlier, the heavens declare. The heavens speak. They declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Every star is a preacher, the psalmist says day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard this preaching this proclamation is heard everywhere on the globe their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world well It is this very same idea, this very same doctrine that we find here in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. God shows. God shows himself in what he has made. Now we need to understand something very important here. God is distinct from his creation. So it is not that we find God in creation. That's pantheism. That's that everything is part of God. 
And so where do we find God? We find God in creation because creation is part of God. No, 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 no. That's not correct. And I've actually heard Christians use this sort of language before. And so let's, let's, let's change that. Let's alter that in how we speak to our children. It's not that we find God in creation, but that creation is constantly pointing up to him. It is proclaiming him. It is declaring him. It is a big arrow pointing to the living God. That is what creation does. It displays his nature and his character. Every blade of grass, every bird, every chimpanzee and bug, storm cloud, tornado, breeze, human Invention, all declaring the glory of God as creator. The invisible God is made known or perceivable through his visible creation. That's what Paul says here. It's God is invisible. God does not have a body. God is incorporeal. He does not have a body. He he became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on The Son of God took on a a human body and soul. He added to his divine nature a human nature. Yes, the second person of the Trinity is now man and will ever be. Man and God. The God-man. God, as we see throughout Scripture, is spirit. As Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, God is is invisible. His attributes are invisible. You can't go up far enough into space and you'll see him. If we could only get beyond what our telescopes can show us, we would get to the realm of God and we would see God, this this long-bearded man, white beard, sitting on a throne somewhere in a body. No, that's not God. It is really incomprehensible to us how we will perceive God and know God in the new heaven and new earth. It's amazing to think. And we can talk about that and wonder about that. But we must, we must never lose sight of the fact that God is invisible. The invisible God, however, is made known through what is visible. What we can touch and taste and see and hear and smell. Through all that is around us from the time we enter into this world, even when we are in our mother's womb. Last night I was I was lying on, on Jennifer's belly. She's pregnant, and, and I was speaking, and the baby inside of her began to move around and already hearing, hearing those voices within the womb, beginning to experience with those senses, those God-given senses, reality. A reality which points entirely to God. And as Paul describes it here, this revelation is clear, considerable, and convicting. That's what we're going to spend our time looking at as we continue through this first point. This revelation, if you want to write these down as, as subpoints, this revelation is clear, considerable, and convicting. So let's take some time to look at each of those. First, this revelation is clear. 
Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain, plain or evident or manifest to them because God has shown it to them. And look at this language of of clarity in verse 20. Clearly perceived. It is plain to humanity. It is clearly perceived. Many of us, have undoubtedly, I know I have, benefited greatly from the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. And as I'm sure most of you know, he recently passed away. He will be greatly missed by many. Ravi, like so many other Christian intellectuals, worked hard to explain for decades to explain the reasonableness of the Christian worldview with a real heart for lost people, a real heart for those pining after vanities to understand that, that meaning and purpose and joy are found in God alone. We thank God for him and for many others, for these powerful and persuasive voices articulating the Christian worldview over against competing worldviews and showing the persuasive uh, or persuasively showing the legitimacy, truth, credibility of the Christian faith. But after listening to a Christian apologist, maybe you've, you've felt this before. You've watched a debate, maybe a debate by Ravi Zacharias or William Lane Craig or John Lennox or Norman Geisler or some of these other guys. You've watched a debate between an apologist and, and, and an atheist. Or you've just heard a speech given by one of these, a talk given by one of these apologists. You may be tempted to think that the evidence for God is something that can only be extracted by the brightest of minds by those well-trained in apologetics, by those with years of philosophy courses and interactions with unbelievers. Not so, says Paul. Not so. Of course, the arguments for God and Christianity must be made in every generation. From the very early days of the Christian movement. Even we see Paul in the book of Acts. We see Peter in chapter 3 of, of his epistle explaining the need for this giving a defense, giving a reason for the hope that is within us. In the earliest centuries, we have the earliest apologists, particularly those in the second century, who are arguing for the reasonableness of the Christian faith. In every generation, there must be those who stand against the culture and say, Christianity is truth. We praise God for them. But according to Paul, the evidence is out. In plain view. You may be thinking, I need to go and read lots of books and understand the various arguments. Maybe Thomas Aquinas' five arguments for God or, or, or others by these Authors I've mentioned, and and if you can just get these arguments squared away in your mind, then you will be able to show unbelievers that there is a God or something about this God. What Paul says here is that the evidence for God is 
out in plain view for every human being. For all to see. To the five-year-old and the philosopher, God has revealed himself clearly in what he has made. And verse 19 literally reads, for what can be known about God is plain in them. And there's some debate over whether this, this preposition in means to them or in them or among them. But Paul will later say to them. Here he says in them. And I think this suggests to us that the knowledge of God is present around us. Hear this, around us and in us. God has revealed himself around us. Everything that we could see out, out here on the outside, but also what lies within us. What we perceive as well as our very ability to perceive. What we sense out there and what we think in here, everywhere, the creation screams, God is everywhere. Everywhere, this voice goes out. Logic, mathematics, morality, design, cause and effect, the tiny and the vast, and so much more, all putting forth clearly in plain view the knowledge of God for all to see and hear. John MacArthur says this, it would be infinitely more reasonable to think that the separate pieces of a watch could be shaken in a bag and eventually become a dependable timepiece than to think that the world could have evolved into its present state by blind chance. Absolute folly. The great astronomer Johannes Kepler said this, the undevout astronomer is mad. The astronomer, the one who studies the heavens, who does not say in his heart, glory be to God, is mad. I think to use Paul's language, wicked. Wicked. Second, this revelation is considerable. So we've seen first that it is clear. Now we see that it is considerable. Paul explains that what is revealed is nothing short of God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. I mean, this is incredible. We're not just talking about some general supernatural world that, uh, that exists out there that is revealed. Yes, there is something out there beyond the clouds or beyond this realm. That's not what Paul says. One God who is eternally powerful and good, who is perfect in all of his attributes, all of his properties, his divine nature. The creation reveals a God who creates and perpetually sustains. A God who always is. I've often thought 
when I've looked at the moon, I've often thought, it's amazing to me that here is one thing that we know that every human being has looked at, who has eyes. That every human being across space and time, Jesus looked at the moon. Moses looked at the moon. The ancient philosophers of Greece looked at the moon. It's still there. The world is ordered and made, and God is always sustaining it day in and day out because as we come and go, as cities come and go, civilizations come and go, trees grow and rot, God remains. He's eternal. He is. Listen to Paul's language in Acts chapter 14. Verses 16 to 17. This is what he explains to these pagan hearers. In past generations, he, speaking of God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. By the way, that witness he refers to there is exactly what he's talking about here in Romans 1. He did not leave himself without witness. And then listen to what Paul says. He could have said a lot of things here. This is what he says. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is so good. Rebel sinners, haters of God, those who are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, as Paul will go on at the end of chapter 1 of Romans to say, Receive these good things from God. God is good. And all of creation makes this known. When crops grow, God is good. When babies are born, God is good. When man's heart is lifted up with satisfaction in the work of his hands, God is good. Everywhere we look, God is displayed as good. So we see. That this revelation is clear and it is considerable. But thirdly, I want you to also notice that this revelation is convicting. Verse 20. Verse 20 ends with these words. After all that's been said, Paul says this, So they are without excuse. So, what is the effect Of this revelation from God. What is the result? Paul says it very succinctly, clearly here. That people are without excuse for their rejection of God. No excuses. You know, when you call out to your child. And you think that they heard you. And they don't respond. They just ignore you. Sometimes they do that. But maybe they didn't hear you. You go in the room and to their bedroom, you say, son or sweetie or whatever you call your children. Did you not hear daddy, daddy, daddy was calling you? Oh, I didn't hear you. Sometimes they don't hear and that's why they did not respond. Not so with man. Humanity has heard and rejected. That is Paul's point. Because the knowledge of God is innate, 
instinctive to human beings made in God's world because God has revealed himself so clearly and substantially to the eyes, minds, and hearts of the entirety of humanity, we are without excuse. In our rejection of this knowledge, we are under wrath without excuse. Every person. Yes, the sweet old lady who lives across the street from you. Every person is without excuse under the wrath of God apart from Christ. Every person. This means that no one, no one will be able to plead ignorance before God's judgment seat. Nobody dies and stands before God and says, well, God, I've heard some of the new atheists say this. It, well, well, God, you know, if you should have made yourself more clear if you wanted me to believe in you. Hush! There will be none of that on the day of judgment. None of that. Before the tribunal of God, all will be without excuse because of what we're reading here, ultimately here in Romans 1. I love what the early church father, John Chrysostom, says. He says, For what will the heathen say in that day? That we were ignorant of you? Did you then not hear the heavens sending forth the voice by the sight? While the well-ordered harmony of all things spoke out more clearly than a trumpet? Did you not see the hours of night and day abiding unmoved continually, the goodly order of winter, spring, and the other seasons remaining both sure and unmoved? The tractableness of the sea amid all its turbulence and waves. All things abiding in order and by their beauty and their grandeur, preaching aloud of the creator? The answer is, of course they did. Of course they saw. Of course they heard. I want to briefly just note an implication of this. As we think about other people in our lives who aren't believers, we see many marks of the image of God. As Calvin will say, the image of God is not taken away in the fall, but it's marred. And we see still the image of God in in human interactions between one another, in the gentle, loving kiss between a husband and a wife, believers or unbelievers, in the healthcare worker who sacrifices time and and who puts him or herself in harm's way to care for COVID-19 patients. The secret service agent who stands in front of the president in a dangerous moment. The person in the military who goes out to serve his or her country in a dangerous situation. We see all around us the marks of God's image. We see responsibility. We see wisdom. We see skill. Insight. All across humanity, believers and unbelievers alike, there's a reason why we can read 
Aristotle or Cicero and take delight in some of the things we're reading. Or for that matter, Euripides or Shakespeare or whoever else. We see the image of God all across humanity. All people made in His image. Not ruined, but marred. But know this. In the hearts of unbelievers that you know, in your family, in your neighborhood, among your friends, no one we meet is ignorant of God. No one. And that affects our apologetics. We're not dealing with people who are objective observers, who are standing between arguments. We're dealing with people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know there's a God. Deep, deep in their hearts, they know and they suppress. They hold it down. They push it down by nature. We are not dealing with ignorance. We are dealing with the suppression, the suppression of the knowledge of God made plain everywhere. That's what we're dealing with. That's what defined your heart and my heart before we became a Christian. And that's what defines the heart of every person we meet. So that leads us to our second point. We suppress. God shows we suppress. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what have human beings done with this knowledge of God? God's made it known. He's revealed it. It's in us and around us. It's in the tiny and in the vast. Especially for those of us who can see the tiny and the vast. More than any other generation of mankind, we're able to probe down. Uh, Previous generations could not have seen the coronavirus to know anything about it. We've got pictures of it everywhere. This little ball with these little spikes coming out of it. Spikes attacking cells. The tininess that we see in the world. The vastness we see. We We can go deep and deep and deep into space modern technology. What do we do with it? What have we done with this knowledge of God? Earlier, Paul used the language of suppressing or holding down the truth. It is the language of, of sort of snuffing something out or trying to snuff something out. It's not the absence of knowledge, but the rejection of knowledge that we see across the world. And Paul describes this suppressing in terms of what we don't do, and in terms of what we do. So that's what we're going to turn to now, if you want to write these down, two things. This suppressing is described in terms of what we don't do and what we do. First, what we don't do. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's what we don't do. The knowledge is there. The revelation is there. We do not give glory to God, honor God, and give thanks to Him, Paul says. 
this eternally powerful God who gives life and then sustains that life is due our praise, honor, and thanks every moment of every day. He is due our glorying in him. He is due our extolling of his name. Psalm 29, 1-2 says, Ascribe to the Lord. This is what it looks like to to glorify God, to give him glory, to honor him. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. By the way, when we don't give something to someone that is due them, that is injustice. That's the heart of sin, which we looked at last week. The ungodliness and injustice or unrighteousness. We think of injustice as injustice between human beings. No, the greatest injustice is that we do not give God what is due him. Glory, honor, and praise. Worship the Lord, the psalmist goes on to say, in the splendor of holiness. This is exactly what human beings, Paul says, have failed to do. What the psalmist calls for in Psalm 29 is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying human beings have done. And closely connected with this failure to honor God as God is the lack of thanksgiving to him for all that he has given. We trace this, of course, as we do all other things, back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Satan calls God's goodness into question, calls God's word into question, calls God's goodness into question. And instead of grateful recognition of all that God has given and a kind of restful contentment in all that God has given. By the way, gratitude, contentment is a lived out gratitude. When there's discontent, there's ingratitude. Instead of that grateful recognition of all that God had given them, what do we find with the first humans? They bought the lie and chose to ignore all that God had given them as they pursued what God had forbidden for them. The one thing. That's, the, that, that's what's so striking about, about the fall narrative. There's nothing magical about, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is simply the, the one thing that God, whereby God would test his people. The one thing that they could not have. Everything else was theirs. They couldn't have this tree though. But instead of being grateful for all that God had given, they pushed it aside. They suppressed it. They had no thanks to say to God about it at all. Instead, they reached out for the one thing God had said no to. I think there's an implication for us to consider here that really struck me this week for my own, my own heart. Where we find a failure to praise and thank God, we are seeing the seedbed of all other sin. Think about that. 
Where does Paul begin in this litany of human sinfulness? There's progression here. He, he's going to work out from this to what we'll see in a moment, and then from that to idolatry, and from that to the giving over to all kinds of wickedness that we'll find at the end of chapter 1 of Romans. But where does it all go back? What does it all go back to? The suppression, the suppression of God's truth in failing to give Him glory and give Him thanks. So for the Christian, I think, by implication, we can trace back all of our sin in our life, to these two things. Failing to extol him as God and therefore be in awe of him and his holiness and giving him thanks and therefore being content and joyful unto God. This suppressing behavior is part of our old nature. We need to recognize this, Christians. We need to recognize that in our old pre-saved nature, we were by nature in that not extolling God and not giving him thanks. But we carry that old nature around with us. We are, we are daily putting to death the deeds of the body. We are daily not sowing to the flesh, but to the spirit. And so what we would expect is that as we sow to the flesh, what are we going to begin to see? Well, all kinds of things that we see in Romans 1, but at the heart of it all, at the bottom of it all, is ingratitude and a lack of praise. And this is wonderful. Because it tells us that wherever our hearts are right now, this day, if we want to return to the Lord, if we want to reignite or have God reignite our spiritual lives, this is where we must go. This is where we must go now. Praise Him and thank Him for all that He is and all that He's done for you, and you will start to see your heart begin to hate sin more and love righteousness more. So we see here, first, what we don't do in our suppression of the truth. Finally, we come to what we do. What we do. Latter part of verse 21 in contrast to honoring and thanking God, human beings became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I love this quote from John Murray. He says, The mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false. There is no neutrality in the heart of a man. Or a woman, in a person. In other words, where the truth of the knowledge of God that gives rise to praise and gratitude is suppressed, the false will take its place. And next week, we'll see what this looks like. We will get into the replacement of the truth with idols. We, Jennifer and I have been watching for several weeks now in the evenings when we get an opportunity. We've been watching these National Geographic documentaries uh, on ancient Egypt. It's been fascinating. I mean, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, historically, by ancient Egypt and these, these tombs and all that's being found, the bones and the mummies and the treasures and the paintings and all of that. But 
in the society and civilization of Egypt, it is, it is just dripping with idolatry. It is just dripping with what Paul is going to talk about here in Romans 1. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans looked down on the Egyptians because they, they made gods out of critters. The Romans and Greeks, as they saw it, were better. They made gods out of men. All of it wicked. All of it idolatry. And we'll go on to see that shortly. But here, I want you to see what happens in the minds and hearts of people as they suppress the knowledge of God. What happens to us? What happens when we fail to give God praise and when we do not thank him for what he has done for us and given us? What happens inside? What happens in here? The answer Paul gives is twofold, futility and darkness. Futility and darkness. Meaninglessness, empty speculations about reality, and a heart that is cast into a pit of darkness. That's what happens where there is not praise and gratitude to God. Where the truth of God and His glory is suppressed. Here, in the land of suppression, in the land under wrath, all hope, purpose, and direction are lost. Humankind is left with a corrupted heart, disgusting heart. And as Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Everything we see in our world, right now what we hear in the news, what we see on our streets, what we see in various cities, what we see among individuals, destruction, violence, brutality, abuse of power, all that we see, all the behaviors and outworkings that we see go back to this darkened heart. That's, what, that's the problem with our world. And for the Christian, we must maintain that this is the only solution. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's the only solution for anybody. That's the only solution for you and your children and their children for your neighbor, that's the only solution for anybody, regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality. This is it. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that heals hearts. That's the only thing that changes a man or a woman from within. It is from this darkened place called the human heart that all the filth of human wickedness spews out into our broken world. It's what happened between Cain and Abel. And ever since that time until the end, only the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God who became sin for 
us. Only his coming and the reign of Christ in a new heaven and a new earth in which the glory of God, the knowledge of God, the justice of God is everywhere pervading the hearts and minds of people made perfect through Christ. Only then will there be peace in societies. Only then will there be peace between peoples. Christ is the only answer for our world. Remember, this letter, though we find all of this bad news, this letter is good news. The epistle that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians is full of the good news of Christ. We must hear the bad. We must know that our hearts are dark, like a dark pit, like a dark cave. We must know that before we can know this Healing, guilt-removing gospel. God in Christ has come into this broken world in order to remove our guilt and lay claim to our hearts. Does your heart belong to Christ? Or is it steeped in futility and darkness? Cry out to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself in creation. But even more, thank you for revealing yourself unto salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes us new, removes our guilt, and reconciles us to you through your Son. Oh, Lord, we bless you. We bless you, God Almighty. We bless your name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Every day I will bless you. Every day. Lord, may we magnify your eternal power and divine nature, and the glories of your kindness and love through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.